to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this is the second episode of our season on sex, scandal and social climbers. This week, with laser focus and precision, we will be discussing the fascinating life of Elizabeth Barrett Browning with Fiona Sampson. Long-time listeners might remember Fiona from our season three episode on Mary Shelley and her 2018 book, In Search of Mary Shelley. Indeed. And uh, back when I interviewed Fiona about Mary Shelley, she told me off mic that she was working on a book about Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And I was super excited to hear that because oddly enough, there are very few biographies out there on EBB, even though she was wildly famous and has a fascinating life. So I thought that was really odd. And I'm, I've been excited about this book for a really long time. Now, we kind of jump right on in in this interview. So, Hannah, why don't you just hit us with a few EBB facts to sort of refresh us on the basics of who this lady was? Elizabeth Barrett Moulton Barrett was born on March 6th, 1806. So she was about nine years younger than Mary Shelley and about 10 years older than Charlotte Bronte. Elizabeth was the oldest of 12 children born to Edward Barrett Moulton Barrett and Mary Graham Clark, who were quite wealthy. Edward owned plantations in Jamaica, while Mary's family had owned plantations in the West Indies. So they had lots of money. Mm-hmm. Both new sides. money, new money all over new the place. Money. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth was very well educated and began writing poetry at a young age. She was so prolific and popular that she was considered as a candidate for Poet Laureate after Wordsworth's death. And in 1846, she married fellow poet Robert Browning and the pair moved to Italy after she was disinherited and disowned by her father. There, she gave birth to a son called Penn and produced some of her finest work, including sonnets from the Portuguese and Aurora Lee. Aurora Lee, a straight banger. Have you read that book? Uh, No, I have not. It's so good. (laughs) And it's really good. I don't know why I'm whispering. So now one of the things that really fascinates me about Elizabeth Barrett Browning was that she actively campaigned for the abolition of slavery and wrote anti-slavery poetry and yet lives off of the Mm. proceeds of slave labor, right? So that's some very interesting internal strife right there. Um, There's also all of these suspicions and rumors surrounding her complexion and her heritage and the possibility that she had a black ancestor. And if you've read the book, Children of Uncertain Fortune, Mixed Race Jamaicans in Britain and the Atlantic Family by by Daniel Livesey, that seems very highly plausible. Right. Now, last week we discussed mixed race heirs like the Tornadoes and Fashionable Connections, Miss Lamb and Sanditon, and Olivia Fairfield in The Woman of Color. Livesey's book chronicles the lives of the real-life versions of these characters who moved from Jamaica to England. And not to be too repetitive, but, you know, (laughs) for those of you that may have missed class last week, one thing that really struck me while reading the book was that Jamaica was seen as an unsuitable place for white women to live, like, due to the climate and sort of this constant threat of rebellion and violence. So white men far outnumbered white women on the island. There were thousands of children born to white planters and Caribbean women of color. Some were enslaved and some were free. Now, Elizabeth's family had very deep roots in Jamaica. They owned, I think, over 10,000 acres. They had been there since 1655. She had relatives that were mixed race. So, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising at all if she were a descendant of a Caribbean woman. No, I don't don't think it's a big stretch. In his book, Livesey talks about looking for the stories of mixed race children, like outside of traditional records. Mm. And in his book itself, he cites wills, legal petitions, family correspondence, and inheritance lawsuits which are very juicy, actually. That's where the good stuff is, guys, in those inheritance lawsuits. 
And he specifically says that these stories are found sort of in individual family stories and lore, which definitely put me in the mind of the Barretts. Mm-hmm. Now, something very curious about Elizabeth's father, Edward, was that he had forbid all of his children from ever marrying. And he had a lot of children. <laughs> yeah. A lot of kids. <laughs> um, he said that he would straight up disown them if they ever did. And biographer Julia Marcus claims that this was actually because Edward's father was mixed race and Edward wanted to put an end to the Mm. bloodline. So um, that was something I was like really eager to dig into with Fiona, which is one of the reasons why we just kind of jump right in. I'm like, Fiona, I have so many questions. Mm -hmm. I don't know anyone else who's studying or like (laughs) researching Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I'm just going to come at you. Fiona Sampson is a leading poet and writer published in 38 languages. Her books include eight poetry collections, an edition of Percy Bish. Is that, do you say Bish? It's Bish. It's Bish, yeah. It's like Bish Please. Like Bish Please is what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. An edition of Percy Bish Shelley and the critically acclaimed In Search of Mary Shelley. Broadcaster, critic and literary translator, she was editor of the Poetry Review 2005-12 to and is Emeritus Professor, University of Roehampton. Sampson is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and Wordsworth Trust and a trustee of the Royal Literary Fund. Her book, Two-Way Mirror, The Life of Elizabeth Barrett Browning is available now and it is a great pleasure to have her on the show again. I'm so glad you wrote this book because, okay, so in Why She Wrote, I wrote about Elizabeth Barrett Browning and there were like no, I just felt like there were no resources. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the the biography at the Margaret Foster, which is the last full length biography, 1988. Yeah. And not only is that a long time ago, but it's also before, well, all the correspondence once she gets to her maturity has been archived. So it's beautiful about her childhood and young womanhood. Very sensitive. It's a lovely, you know, I think Margaret Foster was a lovely writer and, you know, she writes really well. And But it doesn't really engage with the work because it can't, because, you know, her resources stopped, you know, yeah. when this was in the 30s. So, yeah. So, so strange. Yeah. I just thought it was like the it's weirdest thing. weird. I know. It is a really weird uphill. It's been really quite uphill, specifically in Britain, actually. There's kind of a kind of shamelessness among the male literary editors. Oh, you know, no, well, you know, she was just a just a, good, a dame in a frock, really. And and yet she was canonical not very long ago. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a kind of, oh, well, let's do, let's rehabilitate someone like Charlotte Mew. You know, nice, but I mean, a very minor figure. Mm-hmm. But heaven forbid that we should rehabilitate someone who really changed the direction that writing was going in and, and so on. It's just bizarre. What is your relationship with her just outside of this book, like before you started writing? Well, mine mine was pretty, pretty just purely symbolic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, she'd always been there for me as a kind of, you know, uh, touchstone. Well, not maybe not a touchstone figure, more like a lighthouse figure. There she is. She's in the canon. When I first start reading the canon, she's the woman. Mm-hmm. And I sort of tumble towards her and I'm excited by her. And But she certainly, I mean, I only did the first year of an English degree at Oxford because I changed to politics and philosophy. But I did the 19th century. She wasn't taught at all. Oh. You could choose between Eliot and Auden or Tennyson and Browning, and Browning meant Robert. And that was the most modern paper. And in the 19th century, you did prose fiction. Okay. You didn't do, you know, a verse novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was very much just, I mean, really my question was, what's happened to her? Where has she gone? You know, what, she she was this canonical figure and now she is not read and... I couldn't really put two and two together because although there are things about her that are, which can be dated for a a 21st century audience, that applies to all poets of the past, all writers of the past. You know, we read past that. We read for the aha of recognition and the, you know, aha of intimacy. And so how could she have, because her poetry is very, I mean, it is a little sentimental, Mm-hmm. But so is Tennyson. 
I mean, obviously, Robert took what Elizabeth learned and took it further. So Robert, you know, Men and Women is very extraordinary in terms of psychodrama and, and very subtle and modern and, and sophisticated. And it feels modern because of that. But Elizabeth, it was Elizabeth who initiated that change. And Elizabeth's language is so intimate and homely and close at hand and so hearth and homey. And actually, that's one of the reasons that orally is such an easy read now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it's a page turner, isn't it? It's, there are whole passages which are fascinating, like Elizabeth's Ars Poetica put into Aurora Lee's mouth, obviously, or or the dis- early descriptions, well, any of the descriptions of place. Y- you know, there are wonderful set pieces, but it's also very fluent, engaged, conversational, mm-hmm. in a way that's extraordinarily modern, and actually in some ways more modern than some of the verse novels that I rather admire. I have rather a soft spot for the verse novel, the kind of late 20th century in English, partly because I wrote one myself. So, um, but you know, someone like Vic from Seth is much more actually mannered, although he feels modern because of the cleanness to his style, you know, in Golden Gate, than Aurora Lee. It is mysterious to me. And I can only think that just as with, um, you know, Frankenstein and the way that the James Whale film 1931 film has imposed itself, has replaced, has displaced the Mary Shelley novel, which is looking at quite different things and in a quite different way. The Barrett's of Wimpole Street, the kind of swooning poetess, which everybody doesn't want, has kind of displaced the real Elizabeth and the real work. I, um, I had not read that bit uh, that Harold Bloom had written about her until I read it in your book. I know, it's horrifying. (laughs) I mean, what? (laughs) It was a lot. Yeah, absolutely it does. And And it's so interesting because actually that's sort of what I, an equivalent thing is what I was taught about Mary Shelley growing up. Really? That's what I wanted to rescue Mary Shelley from. But Mary Shelley has in the intervening you know, years being rescued, you know, mm-hmm. partly by Frankenstein becoming on the syllabus, you know, it's studied everywhere in Britain, it's in the school syllabus, um, certainly for 18 year olds for A-levels, as well as on university syllabi. So, it, you know, there is a, she's been reclaimed. But when mm-hmm. I was, you know, when I was admiring EBB, when I was in my teens, Mary Shelley was, oh, well, she wrote Frankenstein, but actually it was fragmentary and probably Percy wrote it really. And it, it, it doesn't work as a novel. It's not, not a nice fat 19th century big baggy monster it's it's a bit of nothing she was a minor figure mm-hmm. Percy is the figure um and the, and then you hear the same thing about Elizabeth and you begin to realize oh this might be a little pattern there might be a pattern yeah that might not proceed from the text but towards the text yeah, do people sort of the same thing with their relationship do people give Robert a lot more credit do they sort of yeah yeah Absolutely. They don't think that he wrote her poems. Okay. There wasn't that as it was with the cellos. But there is a, you know, I think very few people, even scholars particularly acknowledge and Nessa forced to that the poet is the characteristic of, you know, Robert and his maturity. When he's suddenly, you know, he has, when he marries Elizabeth, he basically has writer's block. And then he goes and sees, you know, they go to Farno, he sees the angel, he starts writing again. And what he starts writing then is very much in Elizabeth's writings. Of course, she's more established than him. She's seven years older than him. Why wouldn't that give you, you know, writer's blocks, particularly if you're the bloke mm-hmm. and, you know, the way it threatens your masculinity and so on. And, and what he learns from her is this flexible, almost disgusting tone. So the intimate, you know, where is she? You know, I, room after room, I hunt the house through, we inhabit together. No, she's there. No, she's not there. That kind of inclusiveness in the thought process that whole flexible line that's Elizabeth Elizabeth starts doing that earlier because although she and Tennyson really develop in chronologically in parallel um Tennyson is still more monumental there is a diff I mean obviously something in like in memoriam is as we would say in a way confessional verse but of course they had no notion of that then um but it's Elizabeth who, who somehow reclaims that 
that first person subject of the poem and makes it a new flexible eye. I mean, actually makes it the lyric eye that's recognizable, I would say all through the 20th century and into the 21st century in English language poetry. You know, she's doing something that isn't there before. Whereas Tennyson is a little more, tells a good story, tells it beautifully, but it's a little more distance, a little more monumental, a little more framed. Elizabeth kind of collapses the frame. And most of all, of course, most radically in sonnets from the Portuguese, where it's the first time, really, it's not she's not the first woman to write a sonnet, but she is, she is taking this form which has always, always in every language been the expression of masculine desire, the equivalent of the male gaze in a sense, and she is writing what are actually confessional because she's writing this, the sonnets secretly. She keeps them secret from Robert while Robert is courting her. She's writing these sonnets, explore, exp as it happens, exploring her feelings as a woman about a man. And she's not disguising that. There's no, there's no slippage. There's no taking on a male persona or a male pen name or anything. No, she's writing them as a woman about a man. So she's really engaging with the poetic eye in a different way. Uh, well, one of the things I appreciate about your book is that you talk about sort of the very complicated relationship that she has with her wealth, <laughs> uh, the plantations, um, internalized racism, question mark, possibly. So let's get into all of that, because I think that's actually really, really fascinating. Yes, thank you. That's a great question. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a lot. I'm like, where do you even start? Where does the money come from? I think that's always my favorite question for anyone, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, follow the money, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and it, is, and it is really interesting because obviously the first thing to say is that the family money, that Elizabeth's family money on both sides comes from slavers, comes from slaving, mm -hmm. at least in part. And actually, so did Robert Browning's. Robert Browning's also the grandson of slavers. But the difference is that his father broke the chain by going out to work on the family plantation, being disgusted and refusing to do any more, coming back and therefore being disowned by his father and having to work in a bank. Mm -hmm. And that is why Robert doesn't have money. It's Elizabeth who has money. And when they run away, it'll be Elizabeth's money. But so Elizabeth by the time she's with Robert and when she's with Robert becomes an active abolitionist. And I know we'll come to that, mm -hmm. but when she's little, she describes herself and her family as the West Indians by which, which means people who own land in the West Indies and her family on her father's side have been in Jamaica since the 17th century when um, Hersey um, Barrett went to uh, was part of the army that um, fought and claimed Jamaica for the king. So he was given a grant of land. He didn't become a slaver and slaving didn't arrive in the family until it arrived in Jamaica, but then it did arrive. Um, and there's absolutely no getting around that. And in what there are so many things that flow from that. One of the things that flows from that is that Elizabeth's father is, and his siblings are born in Jamaica, shipped over at a very young age indeed to boarding school in Britain where they are very unhappy. And later they're allowed to leave and you know, work with tutors. But um, there is no family home or land in, in Britain, in this country. It is, he's nouveau riche in, the ter you know, in those very British terms. And at a time at the end of the 18th and the early 19th century, when money is, you know, we're teetering on the brink of the Industrial Revolution, but it's not there yet. Um, land and ancestry define your class, your correctness, your belonging, your power, your everything. So, um, Edward, his name is Edward Barrett, Moulton Barrett, who marries extremely young, um, very quickly wants to buy land, buys land, kind of buys into the whole going to be country gentry thing, including going to the local Church of England church, although the family actually become congregational because they get much more 
low church, you know, more serious Protestant worshippers, um, builds a, a fantasy house, which is really ahead of its day, you know, ahead of iconic buildings like um, the Brighton Pavilion in terms of its Orientalism and so on, and in fact becomes Lord Sheriff of Herefordshire, so buys his way in. But he has, in a sense, no hinterland. He has no emotional safety net. His mother comes over uh, very soon after the children, and she lives in London in, you know, rented houses because that's how people lived in smart parts of West London, of West London in Malibone. And, and eventually, obviously, she passes away. But so Elizabeth, so Elizabeth's father is entirely, in a way, a self-made man. And even his mentor, who is his father-in-law, tries to take advantage of him. I mean, my suspicion is that there was a sort of bit of a honey trap because very soon after, because Elizabeth's father marries incredibly young before he's reached his majority, in fact, Elizabeth is born before he's 21. Uh, she's the first child. And he marries a woman who's a little bit older, who is the daughter of someone who also has land ownings and estates and uses slave labor and slave labor in Jamaica. And he is, um, he is one of the new, the other form of kind of new money. He's a new industrialist. So he is in Newcastle in the North, industrial North of England, where he has mills, wharfs, mines and he has you know import he imports and breweries because he imports sugar from jamaica so he is and he dies an immensely wealthy man but he obviously thinks that by marrying his daughter into the barrett money he's going to kind of get hold of that empire as part of his empire building mm -hmm. and edward who must have felt this as a real betrayal because his own father had abandoned the family when he was only four years old, very quickly moves the family to the other end of the country, to the southwest of the country rather than the northeast, and that's where he builds his estate and so on. So there's this huge anxiety about identity. I mean, we look at them, or I look at them and think they were fabulously wealthy. I mean, they were inordinately wealthy. I mean, unbelievably wealthy, um, until... Um, when Elizabeth was 26, a contested will in the family meant that actually her father lost a great deal of his money, including so much money he couldn't sustain the country house and, and had to move. They moved first to the South Coast, which is something that where gentry often went, for example, for their health, and then eventually moved into London and later famously to Wimpole Street, which is in the same area of, of Malibone where Elizabeth's grandmother was living um, and settles the family there. But so there's all this anxiety. And then there is a further anxiety around the absent father, the absent Elizabeth's father's absent father. Mm -hmm. And then there's profound anxiety about race. Now the anxiety is it's it, we read it with an anachronistic eye. Uh, so leaving aside enslavement and the whole of that there is the question of what happens if you have uh, you know global heritage ancestry in early 19th century britain it's not great because you're going to be inordinate obviously unbelievably discriminated against and elizabeth believes that she has when she's 39 and she and robert are corresponding their courtship correspondence she only says it writes it once but she says that she thinks she's cursed by having what she calls the blood of a slave. And she makes it it's very clear from the context that what she means is not that to have black heritage is inferior, but that to have been enslaved is the, is the awful fate. So she's very clear it's about that. So in that sense, although she's internalized racism, she also hasn't internalized it because she doesn't think there's something wrong with being black. It's just what happens to you as a result mm -hmm. of being black. So. She is called My Little Portuguese by, um, by Robert, and that's one of the many reasons she ends up calling the sonnets sonnets from the Portuguese. Mm. Um, and he calls her My Little Portuguese partly because of her colouring. So she's olive-skinned, dark hair, big dark eyes. But her paternal grandfather, the disappearing Charles Moulton, um, was from Madeira. And Madeiran population is, was then 
largely either people of Portuguese heritage or people who had been enslaved and brought to Madeira from Africa. So they would have been of African heritage. And that is probably where Elizabeth's colouring comes from. But she believed, and she was right to believe, that the context of slavery means there is enough sexual violence around and there is enough um, corruption of power to make unequal um, even relationships which seem voluntary for it to be likely that she statistically likely that she might have some African Caribbean direct heritage mm-hmm. um, as is so often the case in islands and in places where there's been you know where there've been enslaved populations because right. it, it that's that's what produces them you know a, a mixed population and she also had quite immediate models because her both of her both of her the two eldest of her surviving brothers had relationships with women who um were enslaved mm-hmm. and had children by them so they both had children who were had black heritage mm-hmm. and her favorite uncle the one who died and left her a bequest which was the main reason she was able to run away with robert um did the same he had a relationship with a woman who'd been born enslaved and he had children as a result of that relationship so elizabeth had first cousins who were black mm-hmm. um and then the other relationship key relationship in terms of race was that her paternal grandmother, so who had come over from Jamaica with her father when so on, when her father and his siblings were young, had um, a best friend and companion called Treppy, and Treppy was Mary Trepsack, and Treppy had been born um, to an enslaved woman mm-hmm. and was, you know, of mixed heritage and herself kept slaves. So she was black, but she also kept slaves. So mm-hmm. there's this real crossing over kind of Venn diagram of people who have um, an African or African Caribbean heritage, but then also people who keep slaves. Mm -hmm. And then the enslavement was a whole other thing, which Elizabeth, as she, you know, what do you do if you discover that everything that has given you what's kept the very roof over your head is enslavement and you know that's abhorrent, what do you do? Do you, you, as our fantasy would be today, walk out into the street and, and die in the gutter? No, you don't. Nobody does that. Nobody does it today. Right. You know, when right. we could, you know, we could, we could boycott everything that had been produced by slave labor and, you know, the Far East or whatever. And we don't. And, mm-hmm. and we don't give back, you know, as nations, you know, the wealth that we plundered. For, you know, I mean, none of that. It should, but it doesn't happen. So if you're a woman, you're not allowed to earn your living in 19th century Britain and the family money that keeps the roof over your head has come from slavery. What do you do? Mm-hmm. And what Elizabeth did was to live with it, but at least to develop a conscience and to go on to be in her adulthood, to be really influential in the abolitionist movement and in other movements for rights, for the rights of children who enforced, who were indentured, which is a kind of enslavement, mm-hmm. um, as labor in the in you know the Industrial Revolution in the mills and the mines in this country in Britain and um, for Italian independence and self-determination. So she, she became a kind of very, uh, well, very active, very articulate, as it were, freedom fighter for rights in other areas. Mm-hmm. That was- it's not an ideal solution, right. but it's, I guess, you know, it's so easy for us, isn't it, you know, from, from here to say, you know, I mean, my ancestors were working in the mines in Newcastle, so my hands are clean. But I mean, you can't, you can't say that, you know, right. it's not true. We, it's we're not. all implicated. I think one of the things that Elizabeth has suffered from, you know, very differently is, is this sense, I mean, in a way, Virginia Woolf did it to Elizabeth, but we all do it to our, to our literary foremothers, a sense of, well, why didn't they just, you know, produce more books or whatever? I mean, they were fighting as hard as they, as they, you know, excuse the swear word, damn well could, you know. I mean, yeah. they were doing everything they could, fighting both external and internal obstacles. You know, mm-hmm. it would have been unthinkable for them that they could live as we do. That's to say, allowed to earn, earn your own living, um, right. allowed to vote, allowed to own property. You know, they they were starting from different places from us. And also, as you say, what can an individual do? I mean, that there is... There is a tide in the affairs of man. I mean, you know, change becomes possible when circumstances reach a tipping point. And those circumstances are external and collective. They are not Mm -hmm. individual. Individuals can make a difference. But 
then we have to kind of retrospectively honor what they've done and and keep retelling that story otherwise the women of the future will be just individuals who kind of you know light a spark and go out and I mean that applies to men too obviously Mm -hmm. but I just think there is Again, I think it's different in North America from the way it is in Britain. I think that in Britain, there's a tremendous sense of, um, there isn't a sense of a female canon. There isn't a sense of um, a conversation backwards through time as well as forwards. Mm-hmm. I think we're still in the stage of such anxiety about being allowed into the lighted room that we we just all want to have a conversation with the, with the boys, with the mm-hmm. men. And, and the kind of, the kind of actually almost kind of disgust, a kind of horror about Elizabeth Browning, I would say. You know, this she has so many strikes against her. She's from the 19th century. She's a woman, so she's a dame in a frock, and she's a poet, and she's a poetess. Mm-hmm. You know, all these. What, of course, was the most the, the genre taken the most seriously in her time, the most hardcore, the most sophisticated, is now regarded as the most minor and of marginal significance. And, you know, we have this constant diet of um, not just um, constant re-dramatizations of Jane Austen and so on, but we have this kind of sub-Austen notion of the 19th century of, you know, women in Fox doing nothing except think about who they would marry. And it's, you know, some of them were really brainy. Some of them were really dissatisfied with the state of affairs. Some of them were doing incredibly pioneering work, supporting, I don't know, education for kids who the kids of the poor who didn't didn't have basic literacy i mean doing all Mm -hmm. sorts of things but do you think her relationship too with robert plays into that it makes her like too conventional too sweet too like i mean the love poems like it's like you can't take it seriously yeah i think you're right and i think almost as a kind of i mean you know the moral obviously is don't marry another writer (laughs) Just in general, guys. Just in general. (laughs) Good advice. Just in general, actually, yes, anyway. But, (laughs) you know, I mean, you know, I I do think there's a kind of erasure of actually, of literally of their name. You know, Elizabeth Barrett, she she was always EBB to herself, even when she was a girl, because she was Elizabeth Barrett and she didn't like the Moulton. Mm -hmm. So she called herself Elizabeth Barrett Barrett. She was Barrett, Moulton Barrett. So she was always Elizabeth Barrett or Elizabeth Barrett Barrett. And, you know, it's the same with Mary Shelley. If she'd remained Mary Godwin somehow her reputation would be more audible. You can't write a paragraph in which you say Shelley did so-and-so because what everybody hears is Percy Bysshe. You mm-hmm. can't write a paragraph in which you say Browning did so-and-so because what everyone hears is Robert. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very crude, bald fact, but I think it's the case. And I also yeah. think it's, yeah, we don't, we know that, I mean, particularly the romantic poets, I think are the ones who, who most of the male canon have a, we have a sense of the drama of their lives. I mean, there've been subsequent 20th century writers who've wanted to insert the drama, I mean, Hemingway or Paul Bowles or someone like that. But we quite simply don't think about Tennyson, in fact, in terms of the fact that he was in love with Hallam and he lived in Farringford on the Isle of Wight. We we think of him in terms of the body of work. Mm And we still shift women writers into embodiment and almost completely out, away from the life of the mind. I mean, certainly with Elizabeth, we kind of, you know, the, the melodramatic version of her is not only concentrating on the life rather than the work, mm-hmm. and the work was so hugely influential, but it's it denies the, the serial acts of willpower that made her the adult woman she was. I mean, the willpower that got her surviving chronic illness, chronic life-threatening illness and disability, um, got her treating her writing like a kind of virtual world through which she communicated with the rest of the world, even while she was house and room and bed bound. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the kind of willpower of someone who's largely autodidact, okay, she had her father's library to read around, great, but still she had to read around it herself, mm-hmm. borrowing her brother's tutors. The kind of absolute determination that she would, that she's, she has wrought herself into being a poet. She has hammered herself into poetry. And, and it's a story of such will self-invention, genuine. I mean, you know, she's not faking it till she makes it. She's mm-hmm. really trying very hard to make it. But 
it's such an extraordinary story of self-determination and in both senses of the phrase and and yet that's written over with this story about kind of powerlessness and a woman kind of swooning between the the agency of her father and the agency of her lover right absolutely the opposite of the truth let's talk a little bit about the illness because you can't not honestly absolutely it's a bit of a mystery obviously we don't we don't know we're all you know we're taking a look back and making some some guesses at what was possibly wrong but when did it begin and does it end it doesn't really end yeah really good question because i'm not sure whether it ends and she's been weakened by treatment or it doesn't end i mean so she's She's a really healthy child. In fact, as a family, they're very healthy. You know, t- 11 out of the 12 survived to adulthood. Yeah. So, you know, um, no mean feat, even if you were wealthy in those days. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth is a tomboy. She loves the outdoor life. She loves riding a pony, climbing trees and so on, full of energy until she's 15 when she and her, both her sisters get measles. Okay. And then the other two recover one more quickly than the other. But Elizabeth doesn't. And she seems to me fairly likely, and, you know, our minds are concentrated on this by long COVID, that she had a post-viral syndrome. You know, she, mm-hmm. you can have a post-viral syndrome and be really poorly. And since at that point, and, you know, her doctor's letters are, are quite detailed and very caring, so and they can't find anything wrong with her spine. But at that point, your spine is regarded as kind of, in effect, the seat of your immune system, the seat of your health. Mm-hmm. So if there's something that just won't cure itself, it must be spinal, which doesn't literally mean that your back is crooked. It just means, you know, it's kind of the, it's like the vagus nerve now that, you know, that's now the thing that people will believe is the kind of the center of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your immune, your health, your mental health. So she goes to Gloucester Spa, which is about mm, 30 miles away. It's not the nearest spa. The nearest spa is Cheltenham. Cheltenham is very fashionable. It's where people go on holiday, much more the Jane Austen Bath kind of. Cheltenham and Gloucester are kind of twin towns very close together. But Elizabeth goes to Gloucester, the kind of hardcore one, partly because the spa there is advocated by a very influential doctor who um, actually will be influential in the the origin of vaccines. Um, And uh, she, a friend of Jenna, and... uh, She's put in a spinal sling there Um, and she's in it for months. And of course she comes out unable really to walk Mm -hmm. and really weakened. She's lost her appetite. She's, she's been introduced to morphine to which she's addicted for the rest of her life. And she's obviously not taking very much because she's very high functioning. I mean, she's not like her, you know, so she, but still. um, So she comes home and she's, poorly she's an invalid she's very very weak Mm -hmm. and um her health never really quite recovers and you know then so the notion is that somehow she must have been playing upon this but she she clearly wasn't because she clearly had terrible pulmonary problems she clearly had you know asthma bronchitis something like this which in the days before antibiotics or steroid inhalers, and when there's no Clean Air Act, so once they're living in London, the air they breathe is filthy, mm-hmm. um, That it, it's life-threatening. I mean, it's literally life-threatening. So every time she gets a common cold, she can get ill enough with coughing that she could die. At one point, she coughs so much she breaks a blood vessel. But it's fairly clear that she doesn't have TB, partly because nobody else among her acquaintances has it, mm-hmm. but also because she she doesn't get worse. You know, in fact, she, but then of course, people with TB could recover. But, you know, one doesn't need to speculate that she had that. One, it's enough that she just had a poorly chest. It would have mm. been, it would, would have been enough. And so, um, so she's a little bit better when the family moved to the South Coast, Sierra and so on. Mm. Then she's much worse when they moved to London, although she doesn't want to leave London. So she's sent back to the South Coast, lives there in Torquay for some years. And that's where her favorite brother, drowns and she feels forever after responsible for it because they'd had a row on the day he went out but also because she's begged him to stay down there with her because she's so lonely I mean it's it's a long way from London Mm -hmm. three days journey by road um in those days so 
Um, and then she comes back to London and again, her health is not great. So going to Italy is the great romantic departure. And it's partly obviously to do with being out of her father's jurisdiction, being out of British jurisdiction, therefore out of her father's control. But it's also something that her doctors have recommended she do for her health for, you know, at least a year beforehand, but her father hasn't let her go. He's kind of, yeah, let it run on and run on in the hopes obviously that time would run out. And it did for the for one year. And then she, the next year she does manage to go because obviously Italy is, there's no industrial revolution yet. So the air is clean and it's warm. You know, it's mm-hmm. warm, dry. It's a really good climate if you have a tendency to cough. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think that her illness wasn't really very mysterious. I think it was actually really typical for her day Mm -hmm. and that we wouldn't think twice about it were it not that she used her time when she was shut up in her bedroom to develop as a writer and become this extraordinary writer whereas I do think that going to Italy was quite brave you know that is a a breaking of the bonds now let's talk about Robert and that relationship I I think it's it's cute. Like, where is he at in his career when he sort of starts? Because they're they're circling each other. They're in the same circles, but they're not quite. Yeah. But they never quite meet. Yeah. And then, like, how do they have a a meet cute? It's almost too. It's almost <laughs> too good. It is almost too good, isn't it? So Robert is six years her junior, Elizabeth's junior, but then Elizabeth is a late developer. We have to remember as a poet, partly because she hasn't had the education that the men would have had, and so on. So the first really serious book is the Seraphim and other poems. And then she produces poems 1844, which is the which is the first book of her absent maturity and which gets, you know, rave reviews. Um, so at that point, she's 38. And um, Robert had started well as a precocious young poet, but then had written Sordello, which was regarded as just a terrible error of judgment and an incredible failure. And had become, he was a man about literary town. He didn't have to earn his living, but he wasn't, he was not quite a hanger on, but, you know, someone who goes into those salons, but not a major literary figure. Mm -hmm. And, um, but discerning, obviously, and interested. And he was, his father was friends with John Kenyon. And John Kenyon was Elizabeth's kind of distant cousin and had been her mentor from, the moment where he first met her when she's still very young, he read her first book and thought, my goodness, this is extraordinary. Um, and he gave a copy of Poems 1844 to Robert. He tried to get them to meet each other. He bought, even brought Robert to Wimpole Street, but Elizabeth hadn't been well enough to receive people and so on that day. And so it didn't happen. And Robert was away for uh, a year working abroad uh, as, as a personal secretary. Um, and in 1844, so he didn't read poems 1844, didn't receive it till 1845, at which point he thought it was extraordinary. And he wrote to Elizabeth, um, I love your verses, dear Miss Browning, and I, you know, and I love you, sorry, Miss Barrett, <laughs> and, and I love you. And I think that there's nothing more for someone whose whole identity is their verses, as Elizabeth was, I think it was a, he couldn't have chosen a more sort of seductive, you know, entree. Mm-hmm. And she wrote back sort of acknowledging that she realized what he was saying. And then he kind of took a step back. Oh, no, 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 I'm not really saying that. So she took a step back and there was this kind of little defensive, you know, minuet. And then they settled into a correspondence because... I think they both symbolized poetry to each other. I think he symbolized poetry to her because she had been reading him. I mean, she had mm-hmm. prints of print portraits of the poets of her day up on her wall, including right. Roberts. I mean, she took his portrait down when he came to visit, but, um, um, and he, of course, for him, you know, he's not quite made it as a poet. He's living at home. He's living off his father. And, then he has this correspondence I mean, it's like email romances or, you mm-hmm. know, he's, he has this kind of, he meets this sort of epistolary soulmate and they start talking about literature. They talk about more and more intimate things, not as a confessional, but about their beliefs and so on. Mm-hmm. He keeps pushing to visit. And unlike the kind of 
difficulty Elizabeth makes about almost anybody meeting almost anybody else and has made all through her life. She's always been very shy about her physical presence. She doesn't really resist and she lets him come for visit and he comes and visits and, you know, he stays for an hour and it was, and afterwards they write to say it to each other, it was all as good, it was good as of course it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And very soon after that, he's, he's, saying to he's making declarations and then she's saying but I can't accept those declarations because if I do you can't come visit me you can't come be on your own in the room with me you know so I won't hear them I won't hear them and then so he retracts again and says backwards and forwards which is very touching and human and then through 46 1846 she's daydreaming more and more about going to Italy and she's reading books about Italy and and then suddenly her father announces okay, you're all going to the country next week because I'm going to um, have the house refurbished. Mm -hmm. He was very autocratic. He's very, what he says goes. And and Robert says, well, in that case, we've got to do it now Mm -hmm. because he knows that if they, you know, their relationship is coming a little bit institutionalized into fantasy, into, you know, they have these meetings, they write letters, but are they ever actually going to be together? Yeah. and he knows that she goes to the, win- to the country for the winter. I mean, if it's not, if it's not fall winter, if she goes to the country for the autumn, then it'll be too late to sail because obviously it's bad weather mm-hmm. in winter. So they still have this little window in the early autumn when they can travel, when they can leave and do what they fan- daydream about doing. And he also knows she may not survive the winter. She mm-hmm. survives the first winter of their courtship when her father has you know, failed to let her go to, in fact, to Pisa for her health because it happens to be an incredibly mild winter. So it's a kind of miracle. She she survives. But mm-hmm. Robert doesn't think she'd survive another winter. He also thinks that then it'll never become real. So he forces her hand and says, okay, let's do it. And she agrees and she buys the rings, but he books the church and somehow, well, not somehow, they get there. Um, Elizabeth's witness is her maid. Um, Roberts is an old friend of his. Um, Elizabeth tells her family she's going out to meet her old friend, mentor, Hugh Stuart Boyd, who lives just north of Regent's Park, which is the other side of the park from Marybone Church, which is where they get married, which is just one block from the mm-hmm. house. Um, and uh, Elizabeth nearly faints on the way, but she buys some eau cologne in a local chemist's and she gets there and she does it and then they part and Elizabeth goes off and fulfills her alibi by going to Boyd where her sisters join her and they go for a carriage ride around the park while Elizabeth, of course, in a complete frenzy. What have I done? What have I done? Mm-hmm. And then she gets home and she writes to Robert. And then the next step's question is, well, are they going to go away together? And within a week, they've done it. And again, they've done it because her father is moving the family, so they have to do it. Then there's nothing like a deadline, as all writers right. know, to make you to make you do it. And um, I think the other thing is that Elizabeth and Robert, the reason they do it this way round, which is actually quite fiddly to do, is that they both have this very strong moral sense, and they don't want to elope, which would be immoral because it sure. implies before marriage. So they want to be married and married in a proper, inverted commas, Anglican church before they go off together. Mm-hmm. And they do. And that's why the marriage is secret. But during that week, Elizabeth is paranoid that um, kind of gossip correspondents for the, for the London papers will, who do tend to go to churches and go to the registers to see if they can find any scandals or anomalies, mm-hmm. will seize, will, will find this marriage and will break the story. But luckily they don't. And so... Um, and so Elizabeth and Robert get to where they get to France, where um, they kind of arrive at Paris in such a state of exhaustion that they probably wouldn't have been able to really to go on had it not been that they found an old friend of Robert's, Anna Jameson, and she looks after them. She takes them on to Italy and and the rest is history. Now, what was her family reaction and what were what? what... Do you know what the reaction was like in sort of literary circles as well? Because this would have been a good piece of gossip. A great piece of gossip. <clears throat> well, her family, predictably, perhaps, her father disowns her and he never goes back on that. But in a sense, it's, and she was his favourite, but in a sense, it's not personal because the other two of her siblings who marry before their father dies are also disowned and he never makes up with either of them either. Um, 
her brothers are horrible about it. They're furious and she's really upset. And, you know, they, they use the excuse of being angry about the secrecy. Well, what else was she supposed to do? Right. Um, but her sisters are delighted for her. Her sisters have sort of known and her sisters are delighted because, of course, it's what they want for themselves too. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Henrietta does get that and Arabella doesn't. Um, so she then has a correspondence with her sisters for the rest of her life. And um, from that, we get so much of our information about her, her life in Italy and so on. I mean, she writes to other fr- friends and so on too, with a particular intimacy and fulsomeness and gossip and full of domestic detail about her letters to her sisters. So wonderful. Um, but Literary London is very generous because Literary London knows both of them as figures and kind of makes a point of, um, you know, honouring, celebrating, marking, the, the marriage so their, their work is is lectured on in in together and uh, Carlisle Thomas Carlisle who is Robert's sort of mentor at the Athenaeum and so on um, writes a congratulatory letter and so does <clears throat> Elizabeth's um, female mentor Mary Russell Mitford who mm-hmm. was a kind of popular writer and a really good working literary woman who was a very generous networker among women writers in particular and opened lots of doors for Elizabeth. And so does John Kenyon, who's, who's did, who didn't know that they were going to do this, but he's delighted they've done it. So um, there's a real, there's never, they never become a cause celebre in uh, literary London as the Shelleys did. And maybe that's because they did do the right thing, that's to say they married first, so they couldn't, so there could be gossip, but no one could actually cast a stone. Mm-hmm. It was a really good investment, particularly because, of course, of that thing about Elizabeth writing under her own name. There's no cloak of pseudonymity or anonymity for Elizabeth. Really unusually, if you think about the Brontes or yeah. George Eliot or <laughs> um, Jane Austen is a lady or Mary Shelley is the author of Frankenstein. I mean, alone among them, really, Elizabeth is is writing under her own name. OK, Mary Russell Mitford did, and so did Felicia Haymans and so on. But it's still a... A rare and risky thing and you know there is a a sense that you could be regarded as um a bohemian not that they had that term then but you know you could be regarded as kind of bohemian figure and slightly scandalous in some way that one couldn't quite put one's finger on and elizabeth managed to skirt past that brilliantly her and mary russell mitford i feel like i get all of the best bits of literary gossip from their letters by the way Mm, they're like there's that letter that they're speculating on the identity of who wrote Jane Eyre which I quite like (laughs) (laughs) I think she would have been you know a bit of a force of nature actually well she had to be didn't she you know Mm. she had to keep her father she had to to a time when it's very difficult for a woman to earn her living by her writing I think she she was a and she yeah she was obviously so generous I mean she's always advocating Elizabeth behind her back to Lady Dacre or mm-hmm. the Ladies of Llangollen or, you know, she's, yeah. And she's very, very adoring of Elizabeth in the letters. You know, they are mm-hmm. extremely warm, possibly too warm, but they are very warm. Those two, yeah, like if if there were the literary biopic, then you absolutely need her in the movie. <laughs> absolutely, yes. <laughs> and, of course, she gave Elizabeth Flush, the dog. That's right. Which we must forget. So, uh. in fact. Flush is named for Flush, for Mary's own dog Flush, who is the mother of Flush. Yeah. Oh. Now, what do you think of Flush by Virginia Woolf? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously I think it's a hugely reductive and awful thing to do, particularly Mm -hmm. given that Virginia Woolf, you know, took writing about Roger Fry so seriously. Sorry. I mean, you know, there's absolutely no parity in there significance the significance of the two figures but on the other hand I'm a dog owner and lover too and mm-hmm. I do cry at the end of flush I mean I, I cry every time I read it mm-hmm. you know so in fact I'm choking up thinking about it absurdly so <laughs> <laughs> it's a very effective book it is a charming book and it's a very good book about well culture and society and it is a clever slant way to tell a story it's just wouldn't it mm-hmm. be nice if it flush had belonged to a male writer about whom there have been many biographies and it had been about a male writer rather than a figure who is already such a hostage to fortune because of gender. Mm -hmm. So there has been a script 
floating around Hollywood forever. I don't know if they're ever going to pull the trigger on it. Um, I do hope they do because it would bring some more attention to EBB. Um, but, you know, if they do, if they revise it, what what needs to go in it, do you think? What is like essential? Well, naturally, I think what they have to, what they, is essential is they buy the series, buy the dra- dra- dramatic rights of, of my two-way mirror. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a I great title that, as well. Just keep the title is. also. Absolutely. I think that they need to, I think they need to, obviously it's very hard to present poetry on screen, but mm-hmm. I think that it's, I think the key things are to show her having a lot of success as a poet, that sense of the excitement of the first reviews maybe and so on. Mm-hmm. I think really important to show her contribution to, you know, the child, child labor um, acts. Um, very important to show her commitment to Italian politics. The Risorgimento is happening around her and she is part of it. And her, her funeral is as a heroine of the Risorgimento. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing the first demonstrations by Tuscans coming in to celebrate the Grand Duke, the Habsburg Grand Duke, who has given them some rights, the right to bear arms, actually, really. Um, and then, you know, the battles going on in Northern Italy and, and you know, oh, it's Cavour, oh, no, Cavour's died, you know, who, who's going to lead Italy forward once um, the papal armies have kind of handed handed over back the trump cards and so on so i think that's enormous important that sense of her living in italy and being really absorbed by that but then at the same time her sense of being an echt victorian that she, i think she just had her finger just brilliantly on the zeitgeist she's always just ahead of consensus just enough so that she could actually produce the tip in in public opinion mm-hmm. you know she wrote for hearth and home she wanted to be a good daughter. She was a loving mother. She was a loyal friend and so on. She she wanted all the things that, as it were, as we now say, Middle England was supposed to want in Victorian times. Moral, you know, conventional, feeling full. Um, and, and also at the same time, a product of new money, of mm-hmm. the shift away from the country to industry and money international global wealth international money being money being made she's and she's this modernizer of language and she's rebutting in a sense romanticism which mm-hmm. was problem, problematic for me because i think i've become a romanticist since mary shelley but <laughs> um and actually that's what my next book is about but you know she's rebutting that sense of poetry as special radical abstract over here and she is she's writing a poetry for a new mass readership Mm-hmm. There's, there's more educational literacy and there's an emerging white collar class, a Clark class who have a little bit of leisure to read by the far side in the evening and read aloud. You know, she's she's understanding the kind of new emergence of a kind of consensus politics and not just a kind of landed aristocracy who lead and everybody else is speechless, as it were, and thoughtless, mm-hmm. as it were, in the mud. She's She's such a key figure for that. So I think that, you know, even though Victorian is still seen as something pejorative, you know, a pejorative term, I think you'd have to have that in the script. You've mm-hmm. obviously got to have the romance. And I think you should have the, the long romance of the kind of paradise which she loses, the childhood paradise, because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's actually not very far from where I live. That's purely coincidental. But although the house has been pulled down, the grounds are still there and the public footpaths. And it is extremely beautiful. It is a, it is paradisal. And you would feel if you grew up there that sort of the rest of your life was trying to get back to that kind of perfect happiness. And mm-hmm. there's a strong imp- impetus of self-invention in the domestic sphere too. You know, she turns, you know, the palazzo greedy. And it's, it's just a first floor apartment. It's not a palazzo really. And she calls it cars are greedy. She makes it a home. She, mm-hmm. you know, she talks to her sisters about it in her letters as if it were a palazzo and it's really not it's very nice but it's not very big and it's not very grand um so i think that all those elements which i haven't just expressed in chronological order and of course they can be quite happily are are key Mm -hmm. but above all that sense of her as a public i mean perhaps above all her sense her kind of ardor her sense of the importance of poetry and the importance of poetry as an ethical poetry, that belief that poetry is instrumental in 
furnishing the abstract thought and coloring in the ethical principles so that people get it and are engaged. That's her, the argument she makes in the essay on mind, you know, when she's 20. And she never really shifts from it, that she sees this kind of higher purpose for poetry, mm. uh, you know, uh, a social purpose, a metaphysical purpose, perhaps. And that's, uh, that's very attractive, if a little bit um, humorless. <laughs> but it's also quite a good narrative because it gives her yeah. a hero's journey. She has a hero's journey. I mean, she yeah. absolutely does. It is the perfect hero's journey. And we are back. Lauren, you touched on how you wrote about Elizabeth Barrett Browning at the start of the episode, but I thought it might be nice for you to share like why you had selected her for one of your chapters. Like, how did you find her? Because you mentioned there are very few books about her. So like, mm -hmm. what was that backstory for you? And uh, why did you want to explore what, why she wrote? I worked in well, the child. She... Did you like that? You did, you did. <laughs> Clever girl. Um, well, I remember Aurora Lee being one of the books that was actually pushed on us in high school. Mm -hmm. And I always thought it was kind of weird that like, we knew about Aurora Lee, um, it was on the curriculum, but like we didn't really talk much about EBB beyond that. Like I just feel mm. like she's just not in the conversation as much as she should be, even though her life is fascinating. I was trying to get so many things in that interview because there's so many angles you can take on her, mm -hmm. right? There's her illness, there's her, the money, there's, you know, her relationship with Robert Browning. Like there's too many things actually. And you know, I almost hate to say it because it does feel like I would be accused of reducing her work in some way. Mm -hmm. But I was also really taken with like the love story between her and Robert, right? Oh, that's like, okay. I love that shit as well. <laughs> it's, it's so great. I mean, I love the fact that she's older. She was more established. And he just like loved and respected her work and slid mm -hmm. into her DMs respectfully. respectfully. Yeah. He did not send a <laughs> dick pic, right? He just was like, hey, I love you and your work. You're wonderful. Um, and then they moved to Italy. And that just like sounds to me like the ideal love story, honestly. Like that's that's how I want to be wooed. I just want a letter to come to me in my bedroom that says, I me, love me you and Italy. your work. Let's go to Italy. And I'm I'm down. I'm all I'm totally down. Um, I also was really into the fact that she started, you know, documenting their love story via poetry in a journal mm. while they were recording and just sort of like sorting out her feelings about him in this sort of language that's so dear to her and to him. Because like then eventually she shows him the journal and it's just like this very shared special thing between the two of them yeah i think that's just like adorable and and very interesting <laughs> <laughs> i'm very interested in like creative relationships that are also romantic partnerships as well mm -hmm. i just um because i have never had that and i'm like that's a that's interesting what must it be like to sort of like work with your partner um what are those boundaries like or are there boundaries that sort of thing those poems in the journal, those eventually become sonnets from the Portuguese. And um, I do think reading them is a very special experience. It's actually not my favorite of her work, mm -hmm. but I think they're very interesting because it's almost like listening to Taylor Swift in a way. Like sonnets from the Portuguese is the red 1989 era. And I suppose that would make Aurora Lee folklore Evermore era. And that makes sense to me, actually, because I'm also I feel the same way about Red in 1989. Like, like it. Not my fave. Folklore Evermore. That's my jam. Aurora Lee. That's my jam. So it makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> what was that really bad album she did in between those? Oh, Lover? Yeah, Lover. I forgot about Lover. Yeah, I forgot about great, that one. I think we just we like move yeah, on from that one. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> London boy. <laughs> Awful. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> a couple of things that really stuck out to me from the discussion. Uh, the first one was that the discussion around 
the responsibility that comes with wealth and privilege, right? And as how you were saying about how um, EBB is like simultaneously benefiting from the slave trade while campaigning against it. And I did think Fiona made a really interesting point just about, well, you both did, just about how powerless a lot of those women were and how she kind of had she had to sit with that discomfort she just sat in her room thinking about all of this stuff and then in her adulthood as a woman living in victorian society in her adulthood when she's disowned that's when she can like really start to kind of step out against it in a way that she maybe Mm -hmm. wasn't able to as a younger woman it's funny um that kind of reminds me of a quote in Fiona's book that I highlighted. There were a lot of quotes that I highlighted in this book, by the way, Fiona, if you're listening. (laughs) Um, So many good ones. So many good ones, especially to about like how literary canons are made, not born. Mm. That's very much my jam. And also like all of the sort of uh, poetry analysis that she does on EBB's work. I like really, really appreciated her like sort of walking me through some things. Um, But this quote in particular, I was like, oh, I feel very attacked by this passage. I might have to get it tattooed on my arm. It (laughs) reads, for while Elizabeth is very much a creature of her own times, she also fits in with our own as a woman working on the problem of how to be herself. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm working on that, too. So the second thing I thought was, and this is a much smaller point, it's less deep, Mm. but uh, yeah, just the comment about how Italy wasn't going through an industrial revolution, (laughs) like it melted my brain because I was like, oh, that's why they're all going to Italy because (laughs) there's like less pollution. It just made sense that like Elizabeth mm-hmm. Gaskell and George Eliot, you know, people that are living in London, living in Manchester, they're like, get me out of mm-hmm. these cities. I want clean air. I want a warm climate. I want a moderate climate. Like, let's go. It just makes sense. It made so yeah. much sense. Again, not much talk about the poo smell in Venice, but maybe one of, maybe an episode this season we'll get into it. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I'll get into it. It sounds like you are. <laughs> It's like a little teaser trailer. Yeah, it is. Can't wait for that episode. (laughs) (laughs) So that is all the time we have for this week. A big thank you to Fiona Sampson for joining us and helping us better understand the elusive EBB. And if you would like to keep up with Fiona's work, you can follow her on Twitter at Fiona R. Sampson. And Hannah, for anyone wanting to keep up with us, where, where should they go on the internets? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn and you can buy our book, Why She Write, wherever you get your usual literary fix. 